0: I'm Amy Lee. I'm a paper maker based out of Cleveland. And this is Cut the Craft. And then I'm using a baby blanket. (laughs) (laughs)
1: Like a legit baby blanket?
2: Yes, it's just like a baby. (laughs) down where your feet are you're like patchwork
0: around last night it fell off the bed but it's very slippery because it's a korean baby blanket and so it's very it's really nice it's like heavy but soft and fuzzy and (laughs) and uh usually the adult versions have like big tigers and things on it this one has like a cartoon something or other but it was intended for my niece my mom got it and then she was like upset with my sisters or maybe with even my niece. And then she was like, you take it, you can take it. So, Oh,
1: and now it's being used on your knees. <laughs> I love that. Wait, so you just kind of like wake up and scoot it around to whatever part of you. Yeah. Yeah. Cold? Because
0: it's so slippery. I can kind of slide it around. Like it's, you know, a pro and con. So, oh
1: God, so funny. I love that. <laughs> Well, welcome to Cut the Craft, everybody. I'm Brian.
2: And I'm Amy.
1: And we are here with Amy Lee. Amy, welcome to the show.
0: Thank you. It's great to be
1: here.
2: Yay. Great. Um, Mm -hmm. So we would love to know what you make. And can you tell us a little bit about your process and provide a few uh, translations for uh, terms that you use, like hanji and chitsung? I know I said that wrong. Just correct me (laughs)
0: and just jump in. Go ahead and jump in. (laughs) Save everyone from me. Okay, so I make paper or at least that's the easiest way to talk about what I make because I make a lot of other stuff Mm. out of that paper or I use a specific Mm -hmm. kind of paper to make things within mostly for the most part my interest is working in a korean tradition um so hanji is korean paper uh han means korean and ji means paper so together one word it's it literally means korean paper mm. and so is a thing i like to say a lot because people so often call it hanji paper which is incorrect mm. so mm. it's kind of like you don't go and say Korean limousine, paper, paper. long car, or like <laughs> sushi, raw fish on rice. <laughs> um, you know, you just say the term. <laughs> and I know it's hard because right. people just don't know it and they don't he- they haven't heard it. And so I-, I get that there's it's like oh well, it's better to just um, take the hit and teach it incorrectly so that people know that it's paper. But I like for people to hopefully maybe after I'm dead it will happen that people will say. You say hanji and you know it's Korean paper. But um, so that's the paper that I use. And I make paper that is in the tradition of hanji. Obviously, it's um, I'm making it in America, so it's not technically Korean paper. I'm Korean-American, so, you know, how do you want to get into that? You know, I, it's mm-hmm. a very complicated <laughs> thing. But I'm mm-hmm. working within... Like I'm following the steps that I learned in Korea from a Korean paper maker who learned it from his father, who learned it from his grandfather and so on. So um, so that's mm-hmm. the paper. And then one of the big things I do with that paper is I will um, tear it down into strips and then um, make rope out of it essentially. And by doing that, I take two strips at a time. I twist each one separately and ply them around each other And then I take those ropes and I separate the ply on some of them. So I end up with um, just one ply pieces and also two ply pieces. And then there's a process of essentially paper basketry where I'm weaving the one ply pieces around the two ply ones to make all kinds of things. And so Mm -hmm. um, that could be things that look like baskets or traditional vessels. It can be things that look like ducks, it can be things that look like all kinds of, I mean, I had a teacher, my teacher in Korea basically said, uh, he could make a human being out of paper. So using Hanji, he could use the Jisung technique, which is, so that's the name of that technique, the weaving technique. And he could make, he could weave a person out of paper. So it's really kind of limitless what you can do with it. So, and Jisung is also a little confusing because, um, Chisung is—it's just hard for um, English speakers to pronounce. The mm-hmm. kind of formal way of saying it, you could say, is noyakge, which is also not particularly easy to pronounce for English speakers. But some Koreans use that term because it is fully Korean, whereas they th- they think that chisung um, borrows a little too much from the Japanese um, tradition, which they. Not the tradition of the weaving, but of the language, which has a mm-hmm. whole history of colonization behind it. So, but chisung is the actual technique for doing all of the twisting and twining, which is the official name for the weaving bit. And, um, and then the material, the raw material that I use is called hak. And again, this is hard sometimes to hear for people who don't grow up with Korean sounds, but... Um, Tak is the same plant um, as paper mulberry, which is the colloquial term for Brucinitia papyrifera, which is also a plant used very widely in Japan, in parts of China. Um, And now a lot of American papermakers love using this fiber, even though they source it from Thailand. So, Hmm. um, but I will, I often don't push the tak as much in. Japanese, it's called kozo. And people hear that a lot. I often just say mulberry. And this is also something I get very worked up about. It's not, um, it's not, it makes paper that looks like what we think of as rice paper, but rice paper is a total misnomer. You don't make paper out of rice, at least not the part you eat, because you can't, anything you eat isn't going to make you good paper because paper is made out of cellulose and humans <laughs> can't digest cellulose. So if there was a bunch of rice, uh, cellulose and rice, then we wouldn't eat so much of it. So, um, but you can make paper out of rice straw. It just doesn't look anything like what we think of as rice paper. Rice paper is actually um, not just a misnomer, but it's, it's racist. It's, it's a derogatory term that was made by Westerners who had been, um, exposed to Asia for the first time. And they saw a lot of rice farming, which they hadn't seen a lot. And it was just kind of like, oh, like the paper is white and rice can be white. And look at these farmers and farmers were people who made paper as well. So there was a lot of, um, there's a lot of controversy around that uh, amongst the people who know, because there aren't actual, um, people want like real history literature that says, this is this was the time when we officially made this racist term. And as we know about all kinds of history, that isn't a, it's not how these, that's not how language works. So, um, but the people who care about kind of global paper and and um, prefer not to, we don't call it rice paper. It's, so I will just, I would just call it mulberry paper or I call it Korean paper, or, you know, it can be very vague and say like East Asian paper, but. That's just, I went on for a really long time about language. <laughs> no,
1: no, no. <laughs> you could it's cut okay. all that.
2: <laughs>
1: no.
0: <laughs> That's interesting. <laughs> yeah. uh, but you were talking about work and process. I mean, I make paper. I don't make paper year-round. I, I do it seasonally the way that it was traditionally done. I mean, not, mm-hmm. not even in, in the sense that in Korea, traditionally you make paper in the winter. And then the rest mm-hmm. of the year you're farming, so you're um, doing all the, the farm work and harvesting later in the fall. But um, I I don't think of my process as, oh, every day I'm getting up and making paper because there are so many steps to it that um, – and especially because I'm working with specific plants, um, often it's not the right time. You know, you have to harvest mm-hmm. a plant at a certain time. You can't just harvest it willy-nilly whenever you want it. Um mm-hmm. So there's a time that you harvest. There's a time you process. If you are doing something else, you can always kind of dry fibers and deal with it later. But, um, there are certain times that I often will do a lot of my, um, cord making, like making these ropes out of paper for Jisung. Mm-hmm. I often do that when it's colder and I'm just kind of at home watching a lot of TV, um, mm-hmm. or, you know, cause there are a, a lot of preparatory steps. So, um, mm-hmm. So it's really it just depends on kind of my like different deadlines, like deadlines for shows or deadlines for collectors or, you know, um, my life circumstances. And am I working on something else? So um, I do also make other things. I make artist books and I make um, 2D work and but but the real kind of. the really meaty part of I think what I learned in Korea was the paper making and the cheese
1: Well, and it's funny too, because you mentioned mm-hmm. sort of like, oh yeah, like I don't really think of myself as like, you know, waking up every day and making paper. And I know I have a tiny bit of paper making experience and a lot of times it's just like everyone thinks, Oh, you make paper. So you're just in there at the vet like scooping up sheets and stuff like that. When really that's like the very, one of the very like last parts in the process. (laughs) Yeah, There's like all of the harvesting and, you know, kind of those more seasonal aspects you were talking about just to like get the raw material.
0: Right. I think it's because the being at the vat is kind of the most uh, camera friendly. It's like the sexiest Mm -hmm. part. It's the most magical part to some people. And so Mm -hmm. um, yeah, but it's true. It's the, there are so many other parts of it. And the other thing I want to emphasize is I would never say that I'm a production paper maker. I'm not, I'm not like the people who Mm -hmm. that's how they make their living. Like my teachers, you know, my, that my teacher, that's his job. They have to make paper and then they have to sell it and that's how they feed their families. So, Mm -hmm. um, I, I make paper in small batches for myself. I, I mean, eventually we'll probably have to figure out a better way to sell it, but, Mostly, I sell to people who already know me. Um, I and often I kind of I kind of hoard my paper because it's small batch. It's very <laughs> much like winemaking, you know. Like depending on the year, you get a different kind of harvest depending on how these plants did because of the rain or the soil quality or whatever happened. And so. Um, there is already a tradition in Korean paper making and other kinds of Asian paper making where you actually have to age paper. So, um, like some printmakers won't, like they want paper that's been aged at least 10 years. And so I have paper that has been sitting since I ever started making hanji, like probably 12 years ago, um, that I Ooh. haven't touched. And so uh, I do that with my milkweed paper as well. I just, I, um, I don't, I, I don't make it to sell, to turn around that way. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
1: So it's more just, uh, I guess, sort of in the same way that, like, Amy, you might go out and harvest a tree to then be used for various projects. It's kind of like mm-hmm. for you, you're building a stock of your raw material for, like, your more final projects?
0: Yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay, Cool.
1: So I guess would paper artist be a more accurate term, perhaps? I mean, I, yeah, like, I, in, guess, I
0: guess, I guess, I it would be nice if. Well, I think I just always say that I'm an artist, and then everyone is unhappy with that because they want to know specifically <laughs> what you do. And right. but then if you start talking about paper, they don't really understand. So. Like, so you're an author. To-
1: <laughs> <laughs> Which the answer would also be yes in your yes, case. Yes.
0: Yeah. <laughs> 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 but, um, yeah. And the funny thing is, I, I, do, I do write and I make art. And when I was younger, I, I remember really distinctly thinking, oh, should I become a writer or an artist? And my concern <laughs> then was the same as it is now is, what is better for the environment? If I become an artist, I'm just going to make a lot of junk, And that will turn into trash. Oh, my God. Because exactly what I thought. I'm just going to make a lot of paper. I'm going to generate a lot of paper. And I don't know why I thought it was okay. Maybe I think at the time when I was in college, I was doing a lot of found art because I didn't have money. So I didn't go buy art supplies. I would just find stuff and, you know, put it together. And so I thought, well, I'm not making more trash. I'm just reassembling it. <laughs> so this is okay. <laughs> and that was before I knew anything about paper. So I, I guess it worked out well that I ended up making paper. And then I, you know, I write and generate other kinds of paper. And <laughs> I, I can... Yeah, that's- <laughs>
1: It's so funny how it was like, should I be a, well, if I'm a writer, I create all this paper. And if I'm an artist, I create all this junk. And here you are an artist who creates paper. What? <laughs> 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 oh, that's, that's a conundrum.
2: Yeah, that's funny.
3: The John C. Campbell Folk School based in Brasstown, North Carolina, has virtual options for you and various arts so you can temper your craft touch on top of fueling the fire of your mood with us. They've been forging craft knowledge forward for nearly 100 years, and in this socially distanced epoch, they want to keep those nerves in your body alert, add some color to your time, and brighten your mind with weekend and week-long classes until in-person meetings on their campus can happen once again. You can find them through whatever search engine you prefer, many social media outlets, and our website.
1: For almost 25 years, North House Folk School has been providing a powerful connection between people and resources, linking time-honored traditions and current best practices that help to ensure the future of handcraft. I've been dying to make my way up to North House ever since the first time I saw one of Instructor April Stone's baskets, and the more I learn about it, the more I'm itching to go. They're offering COVID-conscious in-person classes, but even if you can't make it to one of those... They're also offering a smorgasbord of online courses. So whether you feel most comfortable learning handcraft online or on the shore of Lake Superior, North House Folk School has carved out a place for you.
2: So Amy, what is it about paper making that keeps you interested? Or maybe we could expand that to just the things that you're making. What, what about that uh, keeps you interested in what's your personal <laughs> connection to those things?
0: Paper making and all the things. I like mean, there's always more, there are always, there's always more to learn. And so, um, I, I always say, especially with Hanji, I would say, you yeah, know, I'm going to keep using this material until it's no longer interesting to me, until I've exhausted its potential. And mm. I still don't feel I've come anywhere close to that, which is, um, you know, I don't want to be the kind of person where it's just like, I'm just promoting Korean paper or uh, hanji or even just paper making for its own sake. Even I, I, It has to be something that is compelling for me. And so I think the process is a big piece of it. I like that when people, well, I don't actually like, I hate it when people ask me how long things take to make. But um, <laughs> I... But I like that the answer is not an easy answer. I can't say, "Oh, that took seven point five hours." I can, mm-hmm. I can say, "Well, where do you want to begin? Uh, do you want to start right. from when I saw that milkweed plant in the field and was trying to decide if I should cut it down or not?" I mean, yeah, <laughs> You're like, uh, punch it punch the clock. Um, yeah. <laughs> this it's a it's a process that I because I you know this idea of being what's good for or as good as you can get for the environment. What is going to do the least harm and have me have a relationship with the world that maybe I didn't have before, before I was making paper, but it was still interested in art and didn't feel connected. I, what paper making does for me is it just provides a really deep connection to way more than just me. And so even if I, I work alone, um, I'm never really alone because, you know, I have to have a relationship with the plants. And then Mm -hmm. if it's not plants that I'm raising, then I have to have a relationship with the people who own the land that I'm taking the plants from. And Mm -hmm. so um, that's that's something I have to understand about the ecosystems within which that plant lives. And so that I don't, I'm not interested in taking it at a time that it's harmful for anything around it. And so you have Mm -hmm. to choose the right time when it's kind of served all of the other creatures that need it. And then mm-hmm. and then that's when, and I, you know, we are creatures too that need plants very badly. <laughs> I mean, we, <laughs> plants, we, I mean, we survive because of plants. And I think that that, these many layers of connections is why I keep doing it. And then the other work provides me again with a different kind of connection. And that's the connection to my ancestors or my heritage. And growing up, you know, I was, well, you don't know, but I was born. I was born in New York, but I was born to Korean immigrant parents, and um, I was raised in America, and that's why my English is so good. And um, it's, I, you know, I was raised at a time. and I think at, at any time that you're raised anywhere, and you are, you look different from kind of the mainstream um, people who are in power. There's gonna be there's gonna be some kind of conflict. Um, there's gonna be some kind of conflict within yourself, and there's gonna be conflict, you know, in your interactions with other people. And so, there's always a, for second generation. So people who are, I'm I'm first generation born here. Second generation, you know. So for second generation people, it's very common that you reject your kind of the the inherited culture from your parents because you just want to assimilate because that's what immigrants are pressured to do to be successful and everyone mm-hmm. for the most part depending on, on how you're raised in your community you go through that process and and it's very painful and um and I went through that process and then I was really fortunate to then in college, I was in this Chinese uh, landscape painting art history class that I, it was extremely boring. I was sleeping all the time through the slides. (laughs) And then I, we actually had to go on a visit to the museum and I went to Oberlin. And so it was the the, um, Allen Art Museum that's on campus. And there was a great curator uh, who was pulling out, they had just acquired new scrolls of these Chinese landscapes, which were so boring to me, and I was like, okay, great. Um, But then he's unrolling one, and he said, like, look at this paper, and it's this creamy white paper, and it has like gold flecks in it. and And he said, this is actually Korean paper because Chinese painters preferred Korean paper um, to what was whatever you know whatever they were producing in China. And it was just it was one of the only like real big light bulb moments in my life where I felt like my entire head filled with light. And I was thinking, why am I learning about Chinese art history? I don't know anything about Korean art. Like, Mm. what am I doing here? And Mm. I went home to my dorm room that day and um, I called my parents and I said, can you send me back to Korea this summer? Because I, I want to study Korean. And they were like, what? This is the girl, this is the like our daughter who had rejected like all of the Korean stuff, like, stop speaking Korean to us. Korean was my first language at home. And 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 she was totally obsessed with being a musician. I thought you wanted to be a violinist. You just went to music camp for the last seven years or something. Why do you want to go to Korea? And so I mean, part of that was because I was at Oberlin and pretty quickly realized, oh, I am not really that good of a violinist, so this is not a viable career path for me. <laughs> oh. <laughs> now I'm going to become an art major, which, ha-ha, like as viable career paths go, but yeah. <laughs> yeah, really. <laughs> but yeah, they sent, so they sent me and they were so, they were happy. And my grandfather, who was alive at the time, my father's father, he was, so proud of this that he said, "I will pay for her tuition to go to this language school." Um, and I learned nothing, but I at the oh. language school. But I stayed with my cousins and I, I and I stayed with my family, and I learned everything from my. I stayed with this one uh, aunt and uncle, and uh, the oldest cousin. She was just the chattiest, Miss Chatty, Chatty, Chatty. <laughs> and that's how i I regained my facility with Korean was because she was talking to me all the time and um <laughs> and that again it wasn't I never say that that's where oh I' rediscovered hanji that's where I just re reclaimed my language, and so mm-hmm. I was twenty years old then, and then when I eventually decided to um Apply for the Fulbright to go to Korea to study Korean paper making. I could i I had I was thirty years old, and so I had ten years practicing um, essentially talking to my parents i i i I made it very clear. I called them from Korea and said, in Korean, I'm. I'm not going to speak English to you anymore. I'm speaking Korean, and they were like, "This is very awkward. Your Korean is terrible. Like, how are we going to communicate <laughs> with you?" Um, it's okay. You can speak English, and I was like, "No, I'm. I'm going to do it." And um, so it's really, it's very, it's not great. My Korean is fine. I can get by. Like you know, you can dump me somewhere, and I'll get around. But um, they will say, "Why do you speak Korean with an American accent?" And guess why? It's because I'm American. So um, yeah. Yeah. Sorry. I totally went off again. Mm. No, it's great. It's great.
1: It might be a lot of talking from your perspective in your head because we're asking you questions to answer for us. (laughs) But it doesn't come off that way.
2: We want to know, we're a little bit more interested in your story than like techniques and stuff like that because- Behind all of that is is a personal story of how you got to where you are and why you love doing what you do. And that's what people are really interested in, in my opinion. That's what I'm yeah. interested in. Like, I want to yeah. know what,
0: you, what your view is on the world because it's yeah. unique, you know. I always think that the story of me figuring out how to reconnect with my Korean heritage is was more, more monumental to me than actually uh, figuring out that I wanted to make paper there, which obviously (laughs) it was a big deal, but um, kind of the path to how I got to paper to me is less exciting. But I mean, that was actually through books. I was making artist books at the end of my last semester at Oberlin, I started making artist books. And then that was just amazing to me that that one medium could provide a way for me to write and draw and tell stories and and do all kinds of other things. Like I would make an installation and that was a book. And I I didn't mm-hmm. make a performance, but a performance could be a book. And I made a doll that was a book. And And then once I was thinking about graduate school later, I went four years after I was done with college, but I wanted to just make more books and so the program but the program that I found was interdisciplinary and one of the pillars that they had three pillars it was bookbinding, letterpress printing and papermaking. And I didn't know anything about handmade paper, but I had to take that class and the first class to fit into my schedule when I started was papermaking and I just totally fell in love with it. And again, it's a mm-hmm. process. I think it's the water-based process is a big part of it. And I grew up along the Hudson River and I never thought it mattered to me because for the most part, when I was growing up, we couldn't see it as well as we see it now. We, we grew up in an apartment building that later the landlord was thinking, oh, if I just cut down all these trees on this cliff, then we'll have a river view and then I can charge a lot more for rent. And, um, but when we were growing up, it was, you kind of had to look over the trees to see it or like kind of walk to other parts of, of, you know, town to see it. And, um, I didn't think it was a big deal until I went to Ohio for college and I was like, where, there's no water. I mean, it (laughs) would be a stretch to get to Lake Erie from where we were (laughs) as a person with no vehicle. And so, um, I felt very landlocked, and then I think that this process where you're just your hands are you're you're like in water all the time, we're wearing these big boots, there's water all over the floor mm-hmm. um it just was a great way to to reconnect with this thing that I didn't think was even that important to me, but um, I think when you grow up near water it's it it affects you, so that's really beautiful, yeah. I think when, and then when I started learning about the history of papermaking, then I started to get very interested in Korean papermaking. And then realizing there's, there's almost no, there's very little literature in English written about it. And, um, Mm -hmm. and a lot of it is written by people who don't speak Korean. So Mm -hmm. that's when I realized that I I had to actually go to Korea. So, Mm. so I was able to get a year-long Fulbright grant and do that. And that pretty much changed my life.
3: Cool. Mm-hmm. The Mona Lisa, the Sistine Chapel. You have to be there with some things. You have to see it. Descriptions do not suffice, you know what I mean? Meh, who am I kidding? You've heard this before. It's not untrue, but you know, I don't have to be there to know the Mona Lisa isn't really my type. Even though I'm sure the physical aura surrounding that painting is going to amplify the experience of it. Also, sure, there's no amount of simile that can add up to your eyes on the Sistine Chapel. Though I can say, picture the index finger of whatever you call God and the index finger of some average jacked dude stuck in an invisible finger trap and you have something to work with so when i say cassie dixon's woven patterns are like when you see something waving on the other side of a screen and a screen door because of the minute square pattern of the screen the image passes through to meet your eyes or the way the optics shift as you move by like one of those illusions you press your nose to for 15 seconds and then pull back like having white lion fever on the road during a heat wave. You get the idea, but Cassie's weavings are solid material outside your mind. and She says you can notice variations in woven patterns based on good and bad nerves in the fingers during the weaving, so she makes sure to weave when she's good and focused. She's involved in every step of the process for her coverlets, from the flax to the dyeing. Listen to our next episode and get a better picture from the real McCoy herself. And if you want a real experience on top of that great discussion, get one of her coverlets. With fall here, they can provide some added warmth. And if you're having a bad day, you can cover it up with the good ones she's weaved them in.
2: So, well, you're our first paper maker. So how does Hanji fit into the world of papermaking?
0: So papermaking history starts in China a couple centuries before the Common Era. And it is probably started by women who are washing clothes. And the clothing at the time was all made of natural materials that come from plants like hemp. And Mm -hmm. those fibers would... Either collect in the baskets that they were using to transport the clothes, or they would collect on the rocks that they were beating the clothes against. And then you could, the next day, peel away this dry film of what eventually became paper. It was codified in 105 um, by a court eunuch named Sailun, who gets a lot of the credit for doing this, but it was already happening. So mm. it then became a really great, as a lot of us know, paper is a really great way to write things down and then,
2: mm-hmm.
0: and then move it to other people. So mm-hmm. it would, <laughs> it was a great way for religion to um, propagate. So at the time Buddhism was traveling from India through China and then China to Korea and Korea to Japan and, and, Um, it was a way to either write or later print manuscripts that of sutras of the scriptures that were then physically transported by monks. And um, that's how a lot of the Korean people were exposed to paper, Chinese paper. And then, of -hmm. course, that the labor of it and how it how it's done also transports and so there is a specific way that Koreans make paper and there's this way that kind of distinguishes it from a lot of other techniques uh, and the the differences in the sheet formation so there is a bamboo screen that sits on top of a wooden frame it's suspended from a crossbar above the vat and and you can move it in a couple directions. And the the tricky thing about cream paper making is that there's no frame on top of the bamboo screen that um, kind of traps the slurry or the fibers. You just have mm-hmm. to be able to, with your two thumbs in the front of the screen, you have to just hold it tight to the frame. And then mm-hmm. as you move it through this slurry of water, you have to make sure the screen doesn't move around or fall off. Whereas uh-huh. many, many other traditions around the world require another frame to sit on top of the bamboo frame. And that becomes kind of like the pool in which all the slurry plays. So um, that's what they do in Japan. In China, there was probably... Well, it started it started in a frame, but it was kind of backwards from the way that we use it now. And then... Um, they also probably had a tradition of using decal sticks, which are sticks that are held on either side of the screen to keep the screen from moving around, which probably then eventually became a frame. But hmm. you see all these connections between the way that they made paper in China or different parts of China that had more contact with Korea, because Korea was a vassal state to China and had to pay tribute by providing all kinds of things. And one of the major, major tributes was paper. And so China would demand you need to provide this much paper of this dimension and this color and this type. And it was really very, very revered actually in China. Uh, And the same in Japan, the Japanese really loved Korean paper and they wanted it as well. And so there is, there's a record of a Korean monk, um, who went to Japan, to the imperial court and presented paper and colored ink sticks and showed that process. There's a lot of hubbub around where did, you know, when exactly did it start, papermaking start in Japan and papermaking start in Korea. But, but generally it's safe to say that they are, they all had contact with each other and that it was a big way to propagate religion and then eventually for other parts of uh, the civilization as we know it to, to operate in terms of governments using it to provide civil service exams, governments using the people who fail the service, civil service exams, like take it's like taking all the blue books and turning them into armor for their soldiers um, Mm. using paper to oil tents for uh, military using oiled paper for greenhouses to grow plants uh-huh. using paper to just stuff in into your clothing uh, be, to provide some insulation because as a soldier on the northern border of Korea at the time which was actually far oh, into yeah. China so you're getting actually Siberian winds into that if you're patrolling there it's really cold but paper is a great insulator so wow. you would just shove hmm. paper in in between your clothes to try to stay warm and so there's all kinds of of ways that it was used in korea and then also ways that kind of there's cross cultural so there was paper armor in china as well and um so from the, that's kind of the east east asian Lag of paper making. at some point, paper making st- starts to travel west from from China. But in terms of what's happening in East Asia, there's a big connection. There's also Vietnam was a big place that paper making began coming from China as well. But in terms of the the one detail that I would say that really distinguishes Korean paper making aside from it being made by Korean people is that that special way that there's no frame on top of the screen mm. mm-hmm. when you actually form the sheets.
1: Cool, mm. wow. dang, that's crazy! How many different things uh, paper was being used for too? I yeah. mean, nowadays we're like, oh yeah, books and stuff. And <laughs> so, it yeah.
0: like- <laughs> <laughs> I, I had that happen actually with my student this semester in this artist books class that I teach. They were making, I was teaching them how to do the side stitch, which is a traditionally Asian binding because it was used for these kinds of papers, the lightweight papers that, uh, that you could bind many, many sheets together on the side. And so, w- but when you build the book, you have to trim, you trim the edges. And I see a student picking up a handful of these trimmed edges, wondering where to go. And I said, you know, you could, you could keep those. And he said, well, what am I going to do with it? And I, and I just took one and I started twisting and, and I said, look, you can make, you can make thread. And he said, oh, can I sew a book with that thread? And, <laughs> and I mean, technically, depending on how, you know, the strong the paper is, you could, you could. I said, yeah. with this paper, maybe you don't want to go that far, but, and depending on the grain of it and everything, but, but you, this is how, this is exactly how Korean people probably first started making, doing the weaving, doing the chisung, is that they had offcuts because you, you often you, I mean, these days we we prize the deckled edge, or the the lovely edges on the paper, but. Then often you would have to trim all the edges. You want clean edges. And then you have all these mm-hmm. offcuts. And then you knew how hard people worked to make paper. So you don't just throw. There was no garbage then. You don't just throw it. In, <laughs> no recycling. I mean, you could recycle <laughs> it to make new paper, but it would be slightly weaker. You just start playing with it. These people are so, not even these people, all people of that time <laughs> worked with their hands. And you were yeah. always doing stuff. And so you just start what do you do when you play with a long, thin strip of paper? It makes sense to start twisting it. And so yeah. they would twist it and say, oh, this is kind of stronger now than this little sliver of paper. Oh, and guess what? We already know how to weave baskets. So instead <laughs> right. of using grass <laughs> or other fibers, why don't we just weave with this? And and yeah. why don't we make string out of this? And so that's where you start seeing these objects being woven and objects that you needed you needed at home you needed a teapot or a teacup or a gourd to store water or wine or whatever you're drinking or uh the, there's a tradition of making and this is a very special one for uh, of chamber pots but not every day it's not just for everyone but when a woman gets married in korea she no longer is part of, She's belongs to her husband's family. And so she's not really part of her natal family. And this is a tradition that happens in China as well. And so she has to leave her her uh, the family that she was born into and be taken to her husband's family, which could be in another village. But because Korea is very, very mountainous, it was easier instead of to try to wheel her in a cart or something, they would just carry her. So they would have these, Sedan Whoa. chairs, and they just have two or four guys just carrying her through the mountains because it was actually faster wow. to do it that way or easier than to to try to get a- around all these mountains. But it was Confucian culture at the time, and women are not allowed to be seen by men they're not related to. And I mean, literally, if, if you were walking down the street and you see a woman and she doesn't know you, I mean, she would just have to cover her just cover herself, like, you know, like a ghost. And so she couldn't get out of that little chair. But obviously if this journey took a day, the the guys are going to rest because they and they'll rest or they'll do whatever, but she can't get out. And she obviously was going to need to relieve herself. The other thing being, she's probably so nervous because she doesn't know what's going to happen. So Mm -hmm. she might be sick and want to vomit. And so... They would need a chamber pot, but because she's already traveling with all her stuff, so it's heavy. They don't, paper is light, it's lighter than a ceramic chamber pot, and paper is discreet, so it's less noisy than if you had a metal chamber pot. And sometimes she would even put a piece of paper into the chamber pot before she started using to muffle the sounds. Um, And then it was beautiful, so it was considered appropriate for a new bride. Wow, that was something that I didn't even I thought oh whatever it's an old wives tale but I did a lecture in Seoul when I was first in Korea doing that research and I had made this chamber pot because my teacher made me make it because we had to make all traditional objects and I brought it to the lecture and this Korean woman just would not put it down she was she was just touching it and and later I she was a friend of a friend and she said when my mother was getting married the night before, she was so worried because she knew that she had to go in the chair, but she didn't know how she was going to be able to go to the bathroom. And so mm-hmm. she didn't sleep all night. And then the next morning, she climbed into the chair. And there was like a little window with cloth curtains and just two hands like shove in this chamber pot made out of hanji. And what? she was so happy. And she used no. it twice before she got to her husband's house. Oh, Dang. My gosh. Wow!
1: So that's so cool that you thought it was like this, you know, the, as you said, this old wives tale or like uh, old out of date practice, but it was still within living memory.
0: Yes. Yeah.
1: Wow. Wow! That's crazy.
0: And also, I mean, what I learned from there's this woman, Kim Kyung, who had collected for over 50 years everything that she could find made out of hanji. And because a lot of these artifacts were being lost, because, again, in that idea of wanting to update yourself when Korea came out of all the wars and they were so destitute they they tried to they and they did they industrialized incredibly quickly and in, and but to do that they had threw away a lot of old things and so things like mm-hmm. hanji objects it's like why we don't need a paper tray we can get a plastic tray we don't need a paper mm-hmm. or anything we can get this all mass produced. And so this woman, Kim Kyung, was trying to save these things. And she saved a few chamber pots. And she said that in Korea, they're always taught, at least the women are taught, anything that you are ashamed, have shame around, you must make more beautiful. And chamber pots are exactly that. And so she said, even ceramic chamber pots were, were made to be gorgeous and decorated in a certain way. And she would often, when Korea was was modernizing and opening to um, travelers from other countries she would go to these little shops and they would have chamber pots but Western people would come and say, "Oh this would be great for my cakes or my candies a <laughs> like nice bowl for my my sweets and have no yeah. idea that what it what it was so
3: <laughs> yeah because yeah, we're
1: like you don't use really beautiful bowls for that <laughs> like, <laughs> No but um so w- was there like a special finish or something cuz you mentioned that these were also holding like wines and teas right. and things and when people think of unfinished paper it would just you know get soggy. Yes. Yeah.
0: Yes, you definitely have to finish them. So the way I learned was we did an, a first coat of sticky rice paste. And then after that dried, and it took a while for that to dry, especially because with chamber pots and teapots, anything that's going to hold liquid, you actually want to make a double-walled vessel. So you start in the kind of the bottom inside of it, weave it all the way up to the rim And then turn it around and then weave back down to the very bottom. So it's actually two layers of woven paper. And then, so then it's all coated with rice paste. And then after that's dry, you um, coat it with lacquer. And I'm pretty sure they do. And and this is lacquer as in traditional lacquer, which itself is a whole other craft that you could devote your life to, which is you take it from the sap of the lacquer tree that's indigenous to Korea, and you have to filter it many times through handmade paper. And then there's a specific way you apply it. And it doesn't, the way that it sets is not an evaporation process. So you, d- you actually want it's a polymerization process that's, that requires heat and humidity so Koreans mm-hmm. when you're u- using natural lacquer and they would wait for the summers because in Korea gets these crazy monsoon seasons in the summer where it's just pouring rain and then suddenly sunny and then it's pouring again and so it's very hot and humid and that's when they would wait to lacquer everything because mm-hmm. you can you, if it's dry if it's dry out or it's cold the lacquer will not it will not set, it won't become, you know, stay viscous. And so that then seals it completely. And then it's food safe. And even though in the process, when it's, when it's viscous, you have to be very careful because it's actually the same, has the same compound as uh, poison ivy, poison oak. Oh, okay. Wow. Yeah. So if you're allergic, you shouldn't be working with lacquer. (laughs)
1: Yeah. Rash central. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Oh, Amy, maybe this leads into the ducks. Yeah, I was just (laughs) going to say,
2: please tell us about the ducks. I know Brian's really excited about this because
0: he loves (laughs) ducks.
1: uh, I love ducks.
0: I started making ducks several years ago after I saw this image of a woven paper duck using Jisung. And I knew it came from, at least the label said it was a wedding duck. And so I knew it was based on the tradition of giving married, people were getting married a wedding gift of two carved wooden ducks that are painted to look like mandarin ducks, which are a species known to mate for life. And it was to promote marital fidelity and then also fertility because they wanted people to have a lot of babies. And that was a time in Korea where it was important to have a lot of babies because the the babies would often die at birth or soon after. Mm -hmm. So, This was not so much a way to be an annoying, nagging parent as just wanting to continue the line. So (laughs) I think that uh, Kim Kyung, who collected all these Hanji objects, she also had some ducks and she had one in her book that was kind of like a pasted paper mache type duck. And she said, I think this might have been a parent who was doing it because they didn't have the money to commission a nice wood carving and so mm-hmm. instead, they just kind of made this because they still wanted their kid to have a good marriage so i I just loved the weird shape of the the woven image that I saw and I was trying to figure out how to make it and it's a lot harder than anything I had done up until then because I had been taught to make vessels and symmetrical objects. And so I tried to do it on my own and then eventually got another grant to go back to Korea for another few months and and do a little more advanced study so that I could figure out how to do these, these curves. Um, and it just became so, it was started purely as this this technical exercise, like, I want to mm-hmm. make, I want to make that. How do I mm-hmm. make that using this technique of Qisung that I already knew? And and then it became a, a really fun way to just get to know these animals because the first time I was trying to make one, I was actually teaching at Penland, so they encourage teachers to work on creative work while the students are, are doing the same. And I'm working on this duck and I started from the head and I'm going down. And one of my students said, Amy, have you ever seen a real duck? Because
3: <laughs> <laughs> that
0: looks like a swan. Your neck is way too long. And so I, I ripped out a bunch, but it was still kind of long. And it, I, I got a lot of lessons about how, to, how ducks really look. And I would even, there was one time I went to a nature center and and looked at the taxidermied ones, but it wasn't so much about, I don't necessarily need it to read as this is a doc, Mm -hmm. but that again, like all of the work that I do, it's rooted in, it's rooted in a tradition, it's rooted in history, but then it's in my hands now. So this is, Mm -hmm. this is now, this, my, my take on it being someone who is descended from Korean people, but living in America and having studied the way that they made paper in Korea, but then being really interested in using the plants that are native to America to make this paper so that I don't burn all the fossil fuels trying to fly or import uh, tree fiber from Korea all the way here. And, mm-hmm. and also because it's, it's, it's more in keeping with, with my interest in trying to work directly from the land that I am on at any point in time. So mm-hmm. it, it's been a lot of fun figuring out, you know, if I start at the, the, the front of the, the, the bill of the duck, then I can, if I end at the tail, I can release the ropes and then make tail feathers. If I start at the tail, I can come back to the the mouth and open the mouth if i want it to either be a talking duck or lately i just made a duck teapot and then i can open the mouth so that that's where the water would come out of the tea would come oh, wow, out of oh yeah Aww. and so that. is that functional then is it, that one is the... that one is technically i ha, i've only given it a coating of methyl cellulose and i haven't i haven't done the lacquer coating because i the natural lacquer first of all it's very hard to find someone who does that i i don't i didn't study doing that and the, to get the material you have that you do have to get from the trees that are in asia and that natural lacquer usually is a dark brown and i made this this duck it's actually a duck and duckling teapot so the the body of the teapot is the duck and then the lid on the back has a little duckling and
1: oh and, my <laughs> god. <laughs> it can't even handle it.
0: So it's made and it, and I used naturally dyed uh cords. So because that was another thing I got to learn in Korea was natural dyeing. So I was using red onion skins to dye it green, and then Brazil wood to dry to dye the beaks uh more magenta. So I didn't really I don't really want to cover that up. It's not even just the mm-hmm. coating though. Ergonomically, it's a terrible teapot. Like, it's just, uh, <laughs> someone who makes it, because you would have to tip it over so far that it would start leaking out the lid. Because to get oh. it up to the but technically, but but it is built. There's a, there's a hole in the top, and then there's a hole in the beak, and so you could mm-hmm. you, you could. could.
1: <laughs> <laughs>
2: Why That's not? Awesome.
0: Yeah, but I, a- I'm I'm <laughs> really interested in that idea of oh you know if it's functional does it is it less valuable is it more valuable it's more valuable functionally but usually less valuable in terms of money you want to spend less money on it but and and playing with that idea of you know what is even functional these days and 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 again the <laughs> the big thing for me is i can make things with my own hands and and that's mm-hmm. the most interesting thing to me is what are all the things that i can make
1: mhm mhm
0: mm-hmm. so um,
2: Amy, who's someone inside your craft that you admire and uh, maybe someone outside of your craft?
0: I really, really admire Winifred Lutz, who is kind of a godmother of a lot of the American paper making as art in um, in that she pioneered a lot of amazing sculptural techniques for paper, but she's also really serious in the the naturalist work where she has worked with so many different plants to make paper and she's really done mm-hmm. serious research. I think the I mean Tim Barrett's book on Japanese papermaking is great, but I think the hidden gem in there is her appendix. And she has this amazing appendix where she has tested all these American fibers for Japanese paper making, which is very similar to Korean papermaking. So and she says, okay, these are the plants that are really good for Japanese techniques. These are the plants that are not so good. These are the plants that totally don't work, do not even bother. And <laughs> and she has really detailed notes. And she was inspired by a Japanese paper maker who said, what's with all these American people who are trying to use this paper mulberry to make Japanese-style paper in America? Don't you have other plants in America mm-hmm. that would work? <laughs> yeah. Wouldn't yeah, you be more yeah. interested in making paper American paper so uh, and I think that was really really wise and so that that's inspired me for a very long time I go back to that appendix all the time and and even to just her she's been very generous over email when I've asked her some questions and and you can tell you can tell people who've really done not just the um, the reading research but who's who the people who've really experimented with these plants enough to say well, you know, this doesn't work and this is why. Yeah. So yeah, I think mm-hmm. I think she's fantastic. And then outside of my craft, this is almost cheating because paper, is it fiber, right? <laughs> is it within fiber? But I think Sarah sweat oh, yeah. is amazing and she's out in I know. Yeah, Idaho. She's in in Moscow and she is a fiber artist who spins and she knits and she weaves and she Uh, lately came up with this way of doing fringeless uh, tapestry weaving and she's gotten into spinning paper which is something that I do as well and she's also done a lot of great experiments with milkweed fiber not not for paper making but for spinning and then doing other kinds of fiber techniques and she also like like me actually she also draws comics a lot more than I do but And so her, her booklets and her, her blog, there's just so much, so much is just all this creativity. That's great.
1: That's cool. (laughs) I didn't know you drew comics. That's awesome.
0: Yeah. I've done that for a while. I just, I, it's something that, you know, there's so much stuff. We all do so much stuff. And so (laughs) when do you (laughs) find time for this and that? Yeah.
1: (laughs) Yeah. I understand
2: that. Um, So if someone wants to see more of, your
0: work, where can they find you? I uh, have a website that is just my name. So it's amylee.net, aimeele net. Though I, I also own the .com. So if you mess up that, we'll still take you there. And then <laughs> pretty much I don't do social media. So anything that's anywhere adjacent to social media, like I have a very old old platform blog, on blogger. And then I have images on Flickr. I have videos on YouTube, all of that links from the website.
2: Mm, yeah. Yeah. And actually I encourage people to look at the videos because I, I was watching them and they're, they're super informative. If you have any more questions about the things that Amy's talked about, I think that's a great place to start, um, for more information. Oh,
1: and then also Amy, uh, Amy Lee. Okay.
2: <laughs> he's like, me, Amy?
1: Um, uh, also, Amy Lee, you do have um, an award-winning uh, book, Hanji Unfurled, correct?
0: Yes, yes. And it's, oh. it's almost sold out in hardcover. We're getting the paperback version ready now. Wow. So my publisher is the Legacy Press. And so you can buy directly from the publisher because – they do not play with Amazon. So do not <laughs> yeah. get fooled and go to Amazon because all the prices are way too high. That oh, wow. the book retails for $35 hardcover. Do not pay 50, 200, anything more wow. than $35 you should not pay, which is often <laughs> what you find on Amazon. So just wow. support the publisher and buy yeah. directly from the legacy press.
2: Oh yeah, yeah, Good
1: to know. and don't forget the "v" part of the Legacy Press that is yes. legally part of the entity.
0: <laughs> yes, it's very important because there's mix-ups with another organization. So it's the the <laughs> Legacy Press, and the book is Hanji Unfurled: One Journey into Korean Paper Making. It's all about my full, bright research and tons of pictures, full color about the chisung, the hanji making, the natural dyeing. There are other crafts like chumchi which is a paper texturing and and fusing cool. and then artists who work with Hanji. And so it's, it's all kinds of fun. And, and there's actually a little bit, there's a little comic in there. There's a little comic <laughs> in there.
1: <laughs> yes. Yay. All right.
0: <laughs> That's awesome.
1: So, <laughs> sweet little Easter egg in there.
0: <laughs> yeah. So was the easiest way um, for me to show how you turn the screen is I well, will, just have to draw a little person. Draw, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome.
1: Cool. Great. Well, um, Amy's, thank you so much for joining me. Um, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> no, <Yeah. laughs> no uh, Amy, thank you so much for joining us. It was really great having you yeah, on the show. Yeah, thank you
0: so much. Thank you for having me. Thanks. It's been great.
1: Okay. So next up, we have an interview with weaver Cassie Dixon. And to give you a glimpse into the world of weaving, here's a brief clip from that interview.
2: Well I've raised as many as a thousand. What? It takes about a thousand to, to weave a silk blouse. One silk blouse is about a thousand more. What? And, and they will eat almost 50 pounds of mulberry leaves. Oh. It is a lot of work.
0: A lot, a lot, a lot of work. <laughs>
1: Hey, guess what? I'm both. What? <laughs> I'm in a podcast.
2: No, me too. <laughs>
1: <laughs> I'm in another podcast. <laughs> oh, oh, okay. What is it? It is called Books in the Wild. <laughs> I had an interview with a fellow bookbinder, Carrie Schroeder, and we talked about books. It's a podcast about books <laughs> and bookmaking and all of that good stuff. But I was really excited because in this particular episode... It tells the gruesome tale of a murder in the book world.
2: Dun, dun, dun.
1: Yes. A bookbinder named James Cook murdered his finishing toolmaker, John Paz, in 1832. But so then, since I make books and finishing tools, as you know, I got interviewed. And so Carrie and I had a really fun time talking. So please check out episode 14 of Books in the Wild with Carrie Schroeder. But yeah, what else we got, Humble?
2: Well, just the same thing we have every week, (laughs) or I guess every other week, (laughs) a plea for, for rating and reviewing (laughs) us on, um, Apple, I guess, Apple podcasts and subscribe to the show. And thanks to everyone for supporting us on Patreon. It helps us pay for the website and the maintenance and the hosting fees and if we get more support we can dedicate time to different side projects and more interviews so that you guys don't have to wait you know two weeks in between interviews we'd love to be doing more of it so we're thankful for everything that we're getting so far it's awesome brian i forgot to tell you we got a letter from um paul keen in north carolina that was really Oh,
1: sweet. I love Paul.
2: Yeah, yeah. I, uh, I, I, Paul's a
1: fellow book person.
2: Oh, is he really? Uh, it was so nice. Yeah. So uh yeah, I'll have to share Thanks, that Paul. that with you later. But uh yeah, it's just it's really sweet and nice. We get little notes and things like that, and honestly that's it really means a lot to both of us, so so thanks everybody.
1: Yeah, thank y'all so much, um, and thank you for. I saw, I noticed a couple people uh, re- wrote us reviews on Apple Podcast, and that mm-hmm. really does help a ton for uh, mm-hmm. getting their algorithms to help the show. <laughs> become more searchable, <laughs> right, I guess right. <laughs> we're fighting the boss. So I've been told. <laughs> yes. <laughs> so thanks everybody. Yeah.
2: <laughs> yeah. So you can follow us on Instagram at CutTheCraftPodcast, podcast at Amy underscore Umble and at BH Beidler. Um, and if you have any ideas for the show or people you'd like to hear from, just email us at, at cut the craft podcast at gmail.com.
1: And thanks to everyone who continues to help make the show possible, especially to Brad Vedder, who mm-hmm. has done our branding and graphic design, mm-hmm. to the High Divers uh, for their music, to Luke Mitchell of the High Divers for your help with the uh, technical polishing on the back side of things, and to Justin Williams, who writes the um, the little commercial tidbits for the next guest every week. Um, so we hope you enjoyed listening to it as much as we did making it. Thank you.
2: See you next time.